0: I'm going to do God's reading, um, and so if you guys want to stand for the reading of God's Word, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 29. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall This is the reading of God's Word. Morning,
1: everyone. It is so good to be with you all as we worship the Lord this morning. Go, yeah, I've got that set. Uh, my name is David Duran, and I am the church planting resident here at Doxa Church. Some of you may have heard that we are planting a church in the Plymouth area of Massachusetts. Uh, the Duran family and Phil Naparella will be moving uh, in just a couple of months to begin that work. And uh, it's, it's been really encouraging to see the Lord actively answer the prayers that we've been praying and that many of you have been praying uh, for this church plant. Uh, recently, I've had a handful of conversations with people who are actually considering moving to be a part of what we hope the Lord will do uh, in Plymouth. And that has been really, really encouraging. Uh, please keep praying for that. Perhaps you are one of those people. Keep praying and and see what the Lord will do. Um, Pastors, over the last two years, they have returned my random phone calls. They've returned my random emails. Some guy in South Carolina who says he wants to plant a church in Massachusetts, they have no idea who I am, but they've returned my my calls and my emails. And uh, we've been able to really develop some strong relationships with the churches that are in Massachusetts. And uh, some of them even want to get behind us and support us as we begin this work. So, again, huge, huge answer to prayer. Yes, that is a big, a big amen. Um, We've been praying that the Lord would provide us with a place to live once we get up there. Massachusetts, or the Boston area, has the seventh highest cost of living in the world. It is very expensive to live there. There's a saying, it says, planning a church in Massachusetts, it's twice as expensive, and it takes twice as long. And we've, we've been blessed to see the hand of God just sort of leading us and guiding us as we continue to do this. We're, we're desperate for God's provision. We're desperate for Him to lead. And by God's grace so far, uh, He's been doing that. And just, I like to keep you guys updated. You know this every time I get up here. Just keep you updated with what the Lord has been doing. And I just want to tell you, I'm really encouraged. It's like the Lord, He, he, he sort of shows us the next step to take. We don't know anything beyond that. But He continues to show us the next step again and again. And that's how, that's how He works, isn't it? He doesn't give us too much, but just enough to know uh, where to go next. But uh, please just continue to pray for us because our, our time here in Myrtle Beach is it's coming to a close. We've got about four months here until we'll be moving. So please continue to keep us uh, in your prayers. If you want more information about how you can specifically be praying for this church plant, uh, we send out a newsletter typically at the beginning of every month. And there's a sign-up sheet in the back at the Connect Center. Just put your name and your email address. Love to continue to keep you all updated with what the Lord is doing. Uh, There's also a small information packet that's over there. It's very basic. It just has some general information about about our family and the church and what we hope the Lord will do. Um, I've got a few over there. If you want to take it, flip through it, and maybe as you're doing it, the Lord will begin to work on your heart and draw you uh, to be a part of this. Well, today we are finishing our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. It's been almost seven months since we began studying this back together in September. And today, we're going to look at Jesus' conclusion to the most famous sermon ever given. Let's pray together, and then we'll look at our passage. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, what a, a privilege and a blessing it is for us to be able to call You Father. We who were once spiritual orphans, we've been chosen by You to be Your children. We've been redeemed by the blood of Your Son. We have all the benefits of our redemption applied to us by Your Holy Spirit. You've given us new life in Christ and we praise You for that. Once we we were not a people, but now we are Your people. We were objects of Your wrath and now we are recipients of Your grace. Lord, we pray that You would never let our hearts grow cold to the simple and beautiful truths of your gospel. We come before you today once again asking that you would revive and refresh us in your truth, God. We're inundated every day with things that would pull us away from you. Lies masquerading as truth, temptation to indulge in sin. We need you to remind us, remind us, God, that we are your beloved. We are your children. I want to pray specifically for Pastor Dave Como in Emmanuel Church in Weymouth, Massachusetts. Today being their first Sunday worshiping together as a church, we Doxa Church, we ask and pray that you would bless this brand new congregation. Empower these believers by your spirit. Let their light shine in the darkness on the South Shore. Provide for this church sustain them in their gospel witness bless the ministry of this church for your glory God not for their sake not for Dave's sake not for the people to say look what we've done but for your glory we pray that you would bless Emmanuel church Father God as we open your word today we ask that you speak to us through it and God we need you to apply it to our hearts I cannot do that I need you to do that we need you to do that so we pray you do it Lord pray that you would let us just sit at the feet of Jesus and allow him to teach us in this passage keep me from speaking anything in error and I pray that everything that's said here would would build up and edify your church we ask this all in Jesus name amen one of the most important parts to any sermon or to any speech is the conclusion a speaker may get off to a bad start They may lose a couple of people along the way, and I certainly hope that does not happen today. But they can can ensure that everything will be okay if they can find a way to string together a good conclusion. A good conclusion has a way of of summarizing or, or even creatively restating everything that's been said up to that point. It's at that moment... The conclusion of a talk or a sermon. That moment where the the speaker wants to leave the listener with all the key elements of what they've said. Well, today we're looking at the conclusion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Again, that is the most, this is the most significant sermon ever given. How is Jesus, you've heard it, but we're going to look at it. How is Jesus going to conclude everything that he's been teaching up to this point? Although we can read through the Sermon on the Mount in just a couple of minutes, remember that this is is a summary of a much longer teaching that Jesus would have given. So imagine these people have been sitting there here probably for hours, listening, absorbing everything that Jesus has said, and finally he leaves them with this. Now this is a very familiar passage to many of us who grew up in church, which can make it dangerous for us. I'm sure some of you, uh, you can sing the Sunday school song that goes with this passage from memory. If you're not familiar with it, it's, it's kind of like a little nursery rhyme about the wise man and the foolish man and it gets stuck in your head really, really easily. So I'm not going to sing that for you. But because, <laughs> you don't want that. But because the passage is so well known, here's the thing, church, because the passage is so well known, I'm afraid many of us have failed to feel the magnitude of what's at stake here. Jesus, Jesus isn't playing games. He's not playing games. His tone, His tone isn't demeaning. It's not condescending. But rather, He's speaking with kindness. Even with a tone of sadness in His voice. But nonetheless, Jesus has a serious warning for all His hearers. That includes all those who were present For the sermon and all of us today. A serious warning, but also a glorious invitation. Serious warning, but also a glorious invitation. As we look at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we find Jesus stressing the importance of his hearers' response to all that he's been teaching them. Jesus won't just let them smile and nod and sort of go about their day. And he won't just just let us listen to everything that's been said. He wants to know, what are we actually going to do with it? Since the first century, the most significant question for every human being has been, what are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with Jesus? And none of us can afford to leave that question unanswered. Even if we feel, I know many of you in here, you feel like you've answered that question a long time ago. Even if if that's you, we need to seriously consider do our lives demonstrate that we actually believe all that we say we do. In verses 24 to 27 of Matthew 7, Jesus provides us with two categories of, of everyone who hears this sermon. They fit into one of two categories. The first is those who hear and obey. The second is those who hear and do nothing. And Jesus also gives us some adjectives to describe these sort of people. And over the next next few minutes, Lord willing, each of you in here are going to have a very clear understanding of where you fall when it comes to these two categories. And As I lay this out, I just want to remind you, these are Jesus' words, these are not mine. Of course, I'm talking, but when we're looking at the text, those are, those are Jesus' words. Listen to how Jesus describes everyone who comes face to face with this teaching. Let's look first at verses 24 and 25. I'm going to read them again. If you have your Bibles open, follow along with me. Jesus says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. Now it's very easy for us to misunderstand what Jesus means here. At first reading, it kind of seems like that statement has a very legalistic sound to it, doesn't it? If you're not familiar with that term legalistic or legalism, essentially what legalism, legalism excuse me is, is the belief that the grounds for our acceptance with God come solely from our ability to keep God's law. Now most Christians would never claim to be legalistic. We would, legalism, get away. We'd never claim to be legalistic, but sometimes our lives demonstrate that we actually live that way. We live as if God's love for us comes from our ability to keep His law, from our ability to do what He says. And if we're not careful, we can even get that impression here. It can almost seem like Jesus is sort of browbeating the people, like, you better do all that I just told you to do or else. There's people who interpret the Sermon on the Mount that way. They see it purely as a, a strict moral code that needs to be followed. While I can understand why someone would interpret it this way, it misses the point in a big way of everything that Jesus has been saying. The next thing I'm going to say, if you haven't been listening at all, I really want you to listen to this because I think this is the lens through which we need to view the entire Sermon on the Mount. Brothers and sisters, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, with His words, is pushing people towards Himself. Jesus with his words in the Sermon on the Mount is pushing people towards himself. He's showing people and he's calling people to follow him. Jesus is not asking these people and he's not asking us to earn his approval and his favor by obeying. It's not what he's saying. No, he's calling us to obedience because we've submitted to him as Lord. Let me make sure I'm clear on that. Jesus, in a sincere way, is calling all of us, everyone who hears his teaching, he's calling us to follow and obey him. Jesus is calling all of us into real relationship. That's what he's getting at. He's calling us, he's calling them into real relationship with him. Remember last week, if you were here or if you have your Bible, you can look at it. Remember what Jesus said to the false teachers in verse 23? Again, we looked at it last week. We had a great discussion about it in community group, I thought. Jesus says, then I will declare to them, talking about the the false prophets, false teachers, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus is not looking for people who just profess discipleship. Where we live, it's very easy to just profess with our mouths that we follow Jesus. You can post it on our social media. We can sort of say it casually. Yeah, I follow Jesus. And people will usually leave us alone if that's our posture. It won't bother us. They'll let us kind of do our thing. They leave us alone. It's when we actually obey. It's when we actually do what Jesus says that people start to have a problem with us. And our obedience to Him shows that we actually know Him. Uh, I got a message yesterday from a friend of mine uh, about a 14-year-old girl in India who recently began following Jesus. Her family and many of the people in her village have tried to force her to go back in the temple and worship. They've told her that she can't go with other Christians to pray and to worship God. Her own father has been beating her the message said that this, this 14-year-old girl, she's been praying with more boldness, more conviction since his persecution started. This, this was a direct quote in this message. 14-year-old girl said, Till I die, I will never forsake Christ. And it wasn't just that she said it, she's following Jesus. You can't demonstrate that kind of courage and those kind of statements that this, this 14-year-old girl did just knowing about Jesus. You have to really know Him and love Him. He's not, he's not looking for people who simply, with their words, claim to follow Him. No, He's looking for real, true, intimate relationship. You know, for the first disciples, they're they're sort of doctrinal... Uh, teaching, their learning, it sprang out of true fellowship with Jesus. It wasn't that they knew the correct facts, but they knew the correct person. I want to stop here for just a second and ask a very sincere question to everyone in here. And I don't, I don't care if you were in church from the time you were two days old or today is the first time in your life that you've come to a church to, to worship or just to check it out. You honestly need to answer this question. All of us do. Do I know Jesus? Not do I know about Him. It's great if you know about Him. I hope that you know all about Him. We need to know all about Him, but that is not sufficient. Knowing all about Him is not going to change your life. Knowing all about Jesus is not what caused the apostles to take... The gospel to the ends of the earth and pay with their lives. Knowing all about Jesus is is, is not in itself going to make an eternal difference for you and me. The question is not, do you know about Jesus? The question is, do you know Jesus? One of the ways that we can tell if we know him is if we want to do what he says. Not perfectly all the time, But do we want, in our core, do we want to obey him? Jesus would tell his disciples towards the end of his earthly life, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And here Jesus says to those who come to him, and hear and obey him, he says they'll be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Now I know absolutely nothing about building anything. Many of you can testify to that. We have some people in our church who can build all kinds of things. Praise God for them. But I think we all know that no matter what we're building, if the foundation isn't secure, the whole thing is coming down. A four-year-old who's playing with blocks in in his room, trying to build a block tower, knows that if I don't get this foundation right, this whole thing is coming down. It doesn't matter how, how pretty the structure is. It doesn't matter if it has the nicest appliances and pictures on the wall. If the foundation isn't secure, everything is going to come down. But what Jesus says here next, I think, takes us a little bit by surprise. The categories that Jesus gives, hear and obey or hear and do nothing, they're very different from each other. Almost the complete opposite. But They have one key element in common. The wise man who hears and obeys and the foolish man who hears and, do, and does nothing, they both get hit by the storm. The wise man who hears and obeys and the foolish man who hears and does nothing both get hit by the storm. And we shouldn't understand the rain and the floods and the winds to refer to sort of different kind of trials or anything like that. I think Jesus is saying in a, in a complete in a certain way, that we will face trials and tribulations in this life. Christians are not immune from sufferings and trials. And many of us in here, we know that. We would amen that when we hear, we hear a statement like that. But when we experience suffering, when we experience hardship, and I say this with, with all humility because I'm guilty of it as well, we start acting like something strange is happening to us. We forget to count it all joy when we face trials of various kinds. Forget that. That's James 1. One of the worst things that we can do as as Christians, uh, for people who don't know Jesus and they know know nothing about Christianity, uh, is paint a picture of true discipleship that does not include suffering and trials. Paul, he tells Timothy, indeed all who desire to live, a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The rain and the floods, the winds, they're going to come in all different ways. There's going to be sickness. There's going to be relationship struggles. There's going to be financial difficulties. There's going to be death. It's the result of living in a broken and fallen world. It's simply unavoidable. Look at what Jesus is getting at here. There's, such a, a, there's so much depth to what Jesus is saying, and especially when you study his words, it's just amazing everything that Jesus says in a single sentence. Look at what Jesus is getting at here. We don't know the firmness of the foundation until the storm comes. Until the, the, the storm comes, the foundation cannot be tested. The storm reveals what the true foundation is. Think about it, both houses, both wives, they look the same up to that point. It's just the foundation that's different. It's only when the storm comes, it's only when the wind is crashing in, the floods are rising up, the rain is pouring down, it's only then that we know which house is founded on the rock and which is founded on the sand. Look again at verses 26 and 27. Jesus says, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. When it comes to the storm that Jesus is describing here, there's really multiple levels to it. As I've already said, there's... There's a here and now aspect of, in terms of trials and sufferings and difficulties living in this world. But the, uh, the, the storm here, church, is also a symbol of God's judgment. The storm is also a symbol for God's judgment. I know sometimes we don't want to talk about this. We don't even want to think about the judgment of God. But it would be wicked and wrong for me standing up here not to talk about it when Jesus is talking about it. Throughout scripture, we see the storm as a symbol for the judgment of God. Quickly, think about the story of Noah in Genesis 6-9 to and the greatest storm there ever was when God flooded the earth. This was God's judgment against the wickedness of the people. Genesis 6-5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The evil what prompted God's judgment through the storm. Another example, Ezekiel 13. The response to false prophets in this passage is judgment through storm. Ezekiel 13, 13. And I'm giving you this just so you know I'm not just making stuff up up here. I want to show you this this is true throughout Scripture. Ezekiel 13, 13. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will make a stormy wind break out in my wrath, There shall be a deluge of rain in my anger and great hailstones in wrath to make a full end. He's speaking to false teachers and false prophets here. I even think that the the storm in Matthew 8, just a little bit ahead, you can read it. I'm going to read it here in a second. Um, The storm in Matthew 8 when Jesus and his disciples are out on the Sea of Galilee was God's judgment in a sense towards the unbelief of the disciples. I'm going to read just a couple verses. I'm going to read that quickly because this passage is going to come into play as we continue here. Matthew 8, 23 to 27, if you've got it in front of you, follow along. And when he, that's Jesus, got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he, Jesus, was asleep. And they went and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? The storm exposes the unbelief of the disciples. And if not for Jesus, destruction, apparently, was to come. Friends, the result... The result of a life built on a faulty foundation is total destruction. The result of surface-level Christianity and superficial discipleship, it will be total collapse. And Jesus, He wants to make sure we understand that. Not in, a, in a, a condescending, angry sort of way, but in a loving, kind, and gentle way. He wants these people, He wants us to know A superficial level of discipleship, of truly following him, ends in collapse. And that's why Jesus goes a step further and even emphasizes the nature of the collapse in verse 27. He says, and great was the fall of it. Can't play around with what Jesus is saying. Can't play games with what Jesus says, what Jesus teaches, who Jesus is plenty of people who do that. There's plenty of of wolves walking around in sheep's clothing. There's plenty of us who are guilty of professing Christ but not living it with our lives. We need the Lord to bring us to repentance. We need Him to bring us into true fellowship and relationship with Him. There's a failure come to Jesus, to receive Him as Lord and to follow Him as Lord and Master of your life, it means, it means judgment. Here's the good news though. That's very bad news, right? Very bad news, but I have good news for all of us. Whether you've heard it a thousand times or today is the first time you've ever heard it. In the same way, In the same way that Jesus rebuked the winds and the waves in Matthew 8, the same way he said, be still, stop, quiet, in the same way he came and will remove the storm of God's judgment in your life. In our lives, Jesus can and will do that. God is a a righteous judge. He's a righteous judge, but as we've seen from the the Sermon on the Mount, as we've studied this, he's also a loving and merciful Father. He sent his Son, the Lord Jesus, truly God and truly man, to pay the penalty for our sin on the cross. Jesus lived the perfect life that you and I could not live. He died on the cross, enduring the wrath of God in a way that we could not. He rose from the dead, demonstrating that he was God in flesh and assuring all of us in Christ of our future resurrection, Jesus is the one who delivers us from the wrath and righteous judgment of God that is to come. Jesus is the one who delivers us, who sustains us in the storms of this this life. I pray, I've been praying this, I hope there's there's people in this room today and, and the thought that's going through your head right now is I need help following Jesus. I need help following Jesus. Some of you, for the first time in your life, maybe you're thinking that. Like, I see what Jesus is saying. I see what he's calling me to, namely himself, but also to follow him. I need help in doing that. Maybe for the first time today, you've, you've realized that you believe the right things, but you've never truly had a relationship with Jesus. Hey, but the truth is, don't we all need help following Jesus? Doesn't every single one of us need help following Jesus? I pray every day of my life, Jesus, help me to follow you. Help me to follow you. Set my heart on you afresh this morning. Prone to wander, I feel it. No, I'm not the only one. It's up to me. It's up to you. We will build our lives on the sand. There's not a doubt in my mind. I would completely waste my life if my life belonged to me. David Duran would make a waste of his life if my life belonged to me. But my life is his. It belongs to him. And if you're a Christian, the same is true for you. We need Jesus to show us, to help us to build our homes, our life on the rock. We need him to help us put into practice everything that he's taught, not only in the Sermon on the Mount, not only in the Gospels, in the New Testament, the Old Testament. We need him to help us in in all those areas, right? Here's the beautiful thing, though. Jesus loves to help us with this. Jesus loves to help us. He loves to take us by the hand like a little child and show us what it means to follow him. He shows us in the Sermon on the Mount what it means to be truly blessed. He shows us that he obeyed God's law perfectly so that the righteous demands of the law do not hang over our head. He's taught us how to pray, showed us how to live free from anxiety. In This last section here, Jesus has warned us about the trials of, of life sufferings, persecution. He's warned us about judgment. And really, more than anything, He's called us to live our lives in relationship with Him and in conformity to His ways. You know, it's really, it's worth asking the question if you haven't already. Hopefully, you've you've been asking this question that I'm getting ready to pose before you. It's worth asking the question, what right does Jesus have to tell me how to live my life? What right does Jesus have to claim that his words are more important, more significant than any other religious teacher? What right does Jesus have? How the Sermon on the Mount ends. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. When the Jewish scribes and the rabbis would teach the people, what they would do is they would teach and then they would cite a whole number of respected uh, of scholars, if you will, to add an extra level of authority to what they were saying. They had to sort of appeal to other people. And preachers, we do the same thing today, right? We'll cite a, a theologian or a biblical commentator to show that we've sort of done our homework, we know what we're talking about, that there's other people who agree with what we're saying, Who does Jesus cite in the Sermon on the Mount? Who does Jesus quote to show that he's well-read on the subjects that he's discussing? He quotes no one. He refers to the Old Testament throughout, but he, he quotes no one. He cites no one. You know why he doesn't cite or quote anyone else? Because he doesn't have to. Because Jesus himself has all the authority and the people listening, when Jesus finished his, his discourse here, they first began to notice this peculiar level of authority that this teacher has. They noticed it here. But in the Gospel of Matthew, if you, if you continue to read, Matthew goes to great lengths to show his readers and make sure that, that we know who it is that possesses authority. Five times in Matthew... Matthew makes reference to Jesus' authority in his words and in his deeds. And we saw one of those references when Jesus calmed the storm in the Sea of Galilee. But at the end of Matthew, Jesus also claims this authority for himself. Remember Matthew 28, 18, beginning of the Great Commission where Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That statement in itself is worth a sermon. Jesus has all the authority. He has the wisdom to tell us what is good and true. Friends, Jesus knows what is best for us. You know, for many of us, the word authority, it brings negative connotations to our mind. Maybe we've, we've been mistreated by people who are in authority. Maybe we've been um, even persecuted, we've been lied to, been abused. Because of that, we hear authority and we say, "Uh uh-uh, I don't want to hear that. Maybe just in our our sinful nature, we just want to live an autonomous life that's void of any authority figure over us. I would propose to you, and we've been stressing this throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, Jesus shows us that a life lived under the authority of Jesus Christ leads to true human flourishing. A life lived under the authority of Jesus Christ leads to true human flourishing. It leads to healthier families, leads to healthier churches and individuals, perfect by no means, not even close, but by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit as we collectively together live lives in conformity with what Jesus says, it leads to our flourishing human beings. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we will continue to be worked on, we will continue to be perfected until Jesus comes again. The Puritan, I'm going to quote someone here. The Puritan Thomas Goodwin, he has a reminder for all of us that we should consider this morning. It's a very short statement, but I think it's powerful. He said, Judas heard all of Christ's Judas heard all of Christ's sermons, Brothers and sisters, to hear is not enough. To know about Jesus is not enough. Judas knew what Jesus liked to eat. He knew what size shoes that Jesus wore. He knew what Jesus smelled like, but he didn't know him. And because he didn't know him, because he didn't come to him, and he didn't truly follow him, He never put to practice all that Jesus said and all that Jesus taught. Friend, if you're here today and you've, for the first time, or if you've never come to Jesus, come to Him. Know Him. If you've been a Christian for 30 years, be reminded, come to Him. Come to Him. He wants you to come to Him. He will not cast us out ever. He will never cast out those who come to Him. We all need to be reminded of that simple but glorious truth this morning. One of the the ways that we are reminded of God's faithfulness to us and of the redemption that we have in Christ is when we take communion together every Sunday morning. By faith, when we take the cup, when we take the wafer, the Holy Spirit brings real spiritual nourishment to our bodies. We remember all that Christ has done we remember all that he's doing within us now, and we, will, we look forward to his return. Our, our faith is truly strengthened. It's built up when we take communion. But you know what else we're doing? What else we're doing every time we come up here, we take the juice and the wafer? We're all saying together these two statements: "Jesus, I love you, and I want to follow." you. If you're a believer in Christ. And you can say, Jesus, I love you, and I want to follow you. Communion is open for you this morning. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I want you to know that we are, we are really honored that you're here. I sincerely mean that. We are honored that you're here. But this communion meal, it's not, it's not for you. But I think this time is important for you. And I just, what I'd like you to do over the next couple minutes is just think over this simple 2,000-year-old question. What are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with Jesus? And if you have questions about that, about what it really means to follow Him, what it really means to know Him, ask somebody. There's a prayer area in the back. I'm sure someone will be back there uh, either as we take communion or after that they'd love to pray with you. If you go up to them and say, I need help following Jesus, would you pray for me? They'll pray for you. And the Holy Spirit will, will lead you and help you in following Jesus. Don't waste this time this morning. Think over that. Think over, do, do I know him? Do I truly know him? Do I love him and do I want to follow him? Those last two statements describe your communion as open for you spirit. Brothers and sisters, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. When he broke it, he, had, he gave it to his disciples and he said, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink all of this, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you shall drink in remembrance of me. Let's pray together. Jesus, we need help. We need your help to follow you. We battle the world, our flesh, and the devil every single day. We need help. Father, there are are some of us who know all about you, but we don't truly know you. God, I pray that you will reveal yourself in a very real way, not just to them, but also to us who have known you for a long time, Refresh our minds, refresh our hearts with a real desire to love you and to serve you with our lives. God, I pray that the way that we live in this community that is Doxa Church will provide a, a compelling witness of what it really means to know you and love you and follow you. Father, as we take communion, I pray that in a, a very will, a real way, by faith, you would nourish us and share Thank you for all that we have in you, Lord Jesus.
0: Bless us as we continue to worship your name. Pray this in Jesus.